0: We are finally coming today to the end of our study of the book of Isaiah. And I want to take a few moments to thank you first. For at least three things. First of all, I want to thank you for even allowing us to do an experiment like this. In my last sabbatical in 2009, when I was actually beginning my study of Isaiah, to do the sermon series, I remember a pastor of a large mega church telling me, Oh, we could never do that here, because our people wouldn't listen for that long. And I'm just so thankful that you were not like the people in Isaiah who said, Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Preach to us illusions, pleasant things. I'm so glad you didn't do that. And that you were willing to listen to the confrontation with, the, with Isaiah's magnificent holy, Holy God week after week for a period of time. So I do, do want to thank you so much for that. Secondly, I want to thank you for the gift of allowing me to study this particular book that has shaped the mind of Jesus more than any others. He quoted more from Deuteronomy and Isaiah than from any other book in the Old Testament. I prayed like I shared with you last week. I do before every one of those sermons that God would touch your heart. Whether he did or not, I don't know. But I do know that for me to be able to see this absolutely incredible picture of the development of, of this um, suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah... Uh, come to its grand fulfillment in the work and the life of Jesus has convinced me that there is no way any human mind could have put this book together and that has increased my confidence in the Christ that I worship it and I trust it has to some extent done the same in your lives as well and thirdly I, I hope over a period of years however long God gives me I turn this whole thing into a book now, no publisher is going to publish this too big, I think. <laughs> Nobody will probably want to read it. But I have a desire to at least give my six grandchildren a copy of the book of, uh, of Isaiah that will shape their lives for years to come. So thank you for giving me that gift. Really, truly, Peterson has proved to be right when he said, ministry is not our gift to God, but ministry is God's gift to us. And you have given me an unbelievable gift in sticking with us in the study of this book for the last four years now Isaiah began of course with a a terrifying encounter an unexpected terrifying encounter in the temple with a holy God a confrontation that almost threatened to engulf him but he was purified by that same encounter and then he was commissioned to preach that holy one of Israel and over a period of 60 years he preached to God's people who were headed for disaster because of their settled disobedience holy one of Israel was his favorite title for God Used by Isaiah more than anybody else in the Old Testament. And his central message is something that we know well, right? Say it with me. If we will not stand firm in faith, we will not stand firm at all. Faith in terms of external realities. The temptation to come into military alliances with people rather than trust in God. Then faith, when it comes to dealing with the powerlessness Over our own sinfulness that got Israel and Judah into that mess called the exile and us too. And then thirdly, faith that God will in fact produce a love for justice and righteousness in us when that isn't in our DNA. Those are the bridges we have built from Isaiah 2800 years ago to our lives year after week after week over a period of four years. So it's not surprising that the last two chapters, 65 and 66, Again conclude with the same themes coming at it from a different perspective on the theme of worshipping this holy God. Now because of the length of these two chapters I want to approach it slightly differently. I want to kind of give you some selected portions that taken together give you seven powerful affirmations about the nature of authentic worship which is part of our mission statement. We'll take about 10 minutes to cover that and then I want to go back and pick on two of them and take the rest of the service to amplify them because of their foundational importance. So that's kind of where we are going today. First of all, 65, 1 to 5. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Right away, it defines for us that the essence of worship is all about seeking God. Here is God allowing himself to be sought by a people who did not seek him we'll come back to this text later as to why it opens in this way but for now just simply want you to remember that worship is all about seeking God it's about as Alan said creating that space in our heart for God to come in and expel every other idol it is a longing after God that the psalmists say you know how lovely are your dwelling places my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God your spirit's water to my soul. I've tasted and I've seen come near to me and draw near to me. There is that kind of hunger. It is either an expression of a longing for God or it is a desire for an awakening of for a longing of God <coughs> within our hearts. Both of which, by the way, <coughs> excuse me, are worship. Worship is about <coughs> seeking God. Then verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. This is all worship language. It's all about worship. And they are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns every day. His indictment upon the pagans is that they are not worshipping him the way... He said he should be worshipped. So that's the second thing we learn about worship. We must worship him in the way he has prescribed, not in the way that seems right to us. It is not enough to worship the right God. We have to worship him the way he said he is to be worshipped and not make up our own ways to worship him. And then thirdly, chapter 66 verses 20 to 23. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites says the Lord from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all flesh shall come to worship before me declares the Lord And that's the third assertion about worship that missions both locally and globally exist because worship does not we are not in the final analysis about making converts evangelism and mission is not so that we can grow the size of churches all over the world It is rather the establishing of worshipping communities because God is worthy to be worshipped. Then fourthly, chapter 66 verses 18 to 20. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish and Put and Lud, and draw, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. That tells us that the heart of missions is about seeing God's glory and then being sent to declare that glory to the nations of the world. Then fifthly, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. When the nations hear about the glory of God and respond, it is in Jerusalem Blessed by God that they will be satisfied. That's the picture that tells us the fifth affirmation about worship. That a revived church is absolutely central to the work of missions. It will not be accomplished any other way. That's why we heard last week, we learned last week that before Jesus sent out his missionary uh, to the uttermost corners of the world. He said don't go anywhere, wait until you receive power from on high. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. We learned also how unity in the church was crucial to understanding who Jesus is and so a revived church becomes central to the work of missions and then sixthly so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes There twice God is named here as the God of truth in the Hebrew it is an interesting construction it is Elohe Amen. Amen it uses the word Amen, God Amen he is the God of Amen, what do we mean by that now we use the word Amen sometimes just as Christian jargon you know, when someone is preaching something we already agree with or we like and we say, hey, preach it brother, amen, uh, that's not an exactly uh, liturgical use of the word, it's more selfish than anything else, you know, I agree with you, wonderful uh, uh, perhaps a more appropriate way is when somebody has finished praying and we say, amen You know, that's much more serious that's the meaning of the word, so be or let it be, in other words, we are agreeing with whatever you have prayed for, we are agreeing with whatever you are preaching and we, our hearts agree with it, so we say, amen But there's a third more important understanding to that. Both in scripture and in church, when human beings use the word Amen, it comes at the end of a sentence as it should. Somebody else has spoken and we say amen, so be it, we agree with it. But every time God uses the word amen, it comes at the beginning of the sentence. Remember Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say unto you. You know why that's so important? Because when God says amen, he's not agreeing with somebody else and saying, I will let your words come true. He's saying, my words are true. Before I've even spoken them, they consider it done. He's called the God of Amen. And in this context, it says to us that this whole worship enterprise is a mission that will prevail. That the nations will come to a beautified church and God will be glorified. Now, the last assertion is a necessary corollary that's a sad one. And it ends with these words. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies. Of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Refusal to worship this holy one of Israel. Leads to a horrible end. Ultimately there are only two eternal communities. And they are described in 65:14. Behold my servant shall sing for gladness of heart but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for the breaking of spirit. So here are seven concluding affirmations that we looked at in these texts. And you can, as you read chapter 65 and 66, you might want to do that during this week. Just kind of trace these things. They're there in your study guide as well. Worship is all about seeking God. It is an encounter with God that leaves us changed. We must worship him in the way he is prescribed, not in the way that seems right to us. Missions locally and globally exist because worship does not. Missions is about seeing God's glory and being sent to declare that glory amongst the nations. A revived church is central to the work of missions. This mission will prevail and refusing to worship leads to a horrible end. That's the large purpose, large picture, bird's eye view of the closing chapters of Isaiah. What I want to do in the rest of the sermon and go back and amplify on two out of these seven that I think are pertinent, very pertinent for us today. The first one is the second affirmation. We must worship him in the way that he said we should worship him, not according to what seems right to us. If you remember the indictment of the Gentile worship was that they, ch- they walked in a way that was wicked but not good, specifically referring to the way they worship their gods. And in verse 11 he gives us a little bit of detail. He said, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Setting a table is liturgical language again. It's it's part of the pagan worship. And fortune and destiny are the names of the two gods that they worship. Fortune deals with what you and I might call luck. (laughs) And destiny has to do with fate. So good luck and a good fate are the preoccupation of their worship." This, by the way, is the essence of pagan worship. You want to write that down? The essence of pagan worship is to control the gods by pushing the right buttons. So, I need some good luck, and hopefully my fate will be a good fate. If I get the right buttons and manipulate God. That's what the essence of pagan worship is all about. John Oswald is one of the Old Testament scholars, whose specialty is the book of Isaiah, and who helped me a lot in understanding the book, uh, builds the bridge to pagan worship today with these words. He says religion, and include Christian religion in this, religion is the attempt to get on the good side of whatever forces I conceive to have control of my destiny by the easiest and simplest means possible. That being so, and given a deep need to keep control of the core of our being, externals come to play the central part in our religious lives. If I think God likes praising, I will praise. If I think God wants praying, I will pray. If I think God wants offering, I will offer If I think God wants abstinence, I will abstain. If I think God wants obedience, I will obey. But none of these behaviors is for its own sake. They are all means to obtain blessing. Therefore, I will calculate to the finest point possible the minimum of these I can give and still get the blessing. They are one more expression of human pride. It is as though we say, All right, God, you have a commodity I want and I have something you want. So let's engage in a little trade. I'll give you what you want and you give me what I want but you need to recognize God that if you don't give me what I want you're not going to get what you want now that sounds horribly crass but please let's be ruthlessly honest with ourselves doesn't that come uncomfortably close to the way we worship at times got to get the right buttons we see our faith in terms of using the right formula to be. then God was obliged to do something for us it's the things go better with coke mentality things go better with God so let me give him what he wants. It's what's called utilitarian worship. And the Bible says. And Isaiah says it's like a smoke in my nostrils. It's an irritant to God. He says you provoke me. With that kind of worship. It's an insult to me. To be like that. So we need to be careful. About not letting the this. Manipulative controlling. Dem- uh, mindset. Coming into our worship of God. In contrast. The text also tells us what is the good and the right way to worship God. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. The, the, the opening words set up a, almost a comical picture for the sake of underlining something very serious. In those two questions, what is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? You can kind of imagine God shading his eyes. He says, oh, you built a house for me? Let me see if I can find it somewhere. You know, sometimes Sham asks me, to say, honey, can you please get my glasses from so-and-so? Of course, I'm looking all over the place and I can't find them, you know? Where is it, honey? Where did you leave it? That's the kind of the comical picture of God. Oh, you built a big building for me? I'm having a hard time finding it. Where is it? But I'll tell you what I notice. I notice somebody who has a trembling heart. I notice someone who's contrite in spirit and lowly in heart. What does this text tell me? It says that what impresses God in worship is not buildings and liturgies, but a trembling heart and a humble spirit. This is the attitude in which I am called to come and preach every time I stand up to preach God's word anywhere. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church and the Corinthian community, 1st century Greece, was intoxicated with what was called Sophia, human wisdom. They were full of great speakers in there. People who went to the best school, they were Trained in rhetoric and logic and like the modern day Toastmasters, you know. They made speeches and they went after the great speakers. Paul went into that kind of a place. He said, I have not come to sway you with subtle arguments. I have not come to come with cleverness of speech. He said, but I come in fear and in weakness and in trembling. So that your faith may rest not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And I couldn't but help thinking when I was going over this message yesterday morning, getting ready to preach. It, I, was, I was almost like God sandbagged me. He said, Sunday, remember, I'm watching, I'm looking for who's standing in this pulpit and I'm not impressed with cleverness. I'm not impressed with wonderful logic. Although, by the way, Paul used all of that. It wasn't an excuse for sloppiness. It was an issue of trust. He said, I want to see somebody who's trembling. I'll notice him. And one speaker, Sham, and I listened to recently said... When you're looking for a candidate for preacher, how many times do you hear, oh, he trembles really well. That's number one criterion as far as God is concerned. That's who he looks at. And not just in my preaching, it's for all of you. Remember, we talked about the central labor of our work. Housewife, lawyer, engineer, manager, business person, construction worker, school teacher. Do you tremble every day before God's word? For God to notice you in your work? Is that the characteristic out of which your work flows? That's the right way to worship. It's the exact opposite of pagan manipulation. It is an attitude that says, it's not just shaking like this, it's a fundamental attitude that God owes us nothing. Our close friend, 10 years younger than I am, has been recently diagnosed with cancer. Stage 4 cancer. Doesn't look good. I ask myself, why him? I'm 10 years older than me than him. Could have happened to me. And you know what? There's no reason why it shouldn't be me and not him. We can ask why me questions. They're very appropriate. They said in the Bible. But eventually you have to move beyond them to wrestle with the why not me questions. And ultimately, there is no reason why not you and me when it comes to these kind of things. Because God owes us absolutely nothing. In his first email to his friends, he said this. My friend said this. He said, but let us be guarded by the peace of God and let us be strengthened by his joy. Just as we do not grieve as those who have no hope, so also we ought not to freak out like those poor people either. God is on his throne and he's not in the least bit worried. That's worship that trembles before God. And then when he found out it was actually stage 4 cancer, he wrote this in the next email. Meanwhile, in my home, the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts. The news is evil and we accept it. All the while praying and daring to hope that the Lord of the living and the dead will be pleased to do something very, very good for us. But of course, he already has over and over again. And death has lost its thing, at least most of its thing. There's nothing about manipulation there. It's all about trembling at the word of the Lord. That's worship you remember Jesus words to the Samaritan woman who said where should we worship I mean she's getting kind of trapped in this conversation she wanted to deflect it to a theological issue she said oh by the way I don't like all this talk about my husband and and whom I'm living with let's talk about worship you know (laughs) okay let's talk about it do we worship here in Mount Gerizim where our ancestors said or do we worship in Jerusalem like your ancestors say and Jesus said woman it's not in either place the time is coming. In fact, it has already come. When neither in Jerusalem, nor in Jerusalem will they worship. But they who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. He, his answer takes the question right out of the issue of location. And puts it into the condition of the heart. Exactly what God spoke to Alan about. Nothing to do with buildings. It has to do with the heart. And he said, they will worship him in spirit. Which is this spirit of trembling, in humility, and lowliness of spirit. And in truth, the God of the Amen. It's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. Was Jesus' answer? So that's the first thing I want to amplify on. That we need to worship God the way he wants us to worship. Not by the modern day equivalence of pagan worship. Resisting those, we need to bow before him and worship him with a humble contrite spirit trembling before his word in all that we do. The second thing I want to amplify on is the horror of self-worship. The last verse of Isaiah, 66 chapters at the end says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. If you want to get the force of these words, I want you to do a thought experiment with me. Imagine our ravine back there, isn't wooded with all the trees, but imagine it's the city's garbage dump. And imagine that they also throw in there the dead bodies of crucified, that roam through the dead bodies of crucified criminals into a place like that. And imagine that every Sunday you come here for worship and you have a wonderful time singing the kinds of songs that we've been singing. And then before you could get to your cars, you have to go past that valley and you gotta look at all that, all the, those who were considered rebels and traitors and guilty of treason. You say, well that's kinda horrifying. Well that's exactly what this text is saying. They, the people who have worshipped me, will then go and look out on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Why does this book have such a horrible ending? Why such a chilling ending to this magnificent book? And therefore I need to tell you more about this. We need to amplify this text. Because it, it is at part of the heart of the message of Isaiah. Alec Macchio is another Old Testament scholar. At the end of a 550 page book of fine print. Concludes in this word. Why the cemetery? He said the purpose of visiting the cemetery is not to gloat not even to pity though who could restrain pity but to be repelled there is a grandeur about Isaiah not found elsewhere even in the most majestic of the rest of scripture a majesty full of glory and of solemnity made plain in the revelation given to him and the language in which he was inspired to express it but with the grandeur went a stern resoluteness that if the glory does not win us to a life of obedience if the vision of the coming king the suffering servant and the liberating anointed conqueror will not suffice then maybe the unmistakably horrible rewards of disobedience will drive our wayward hearts to tremble at his word. This is part of the ways in which God produces that trembling spirit. Jonathan Edwards used to say, God never gave his promises so that disobedient Christians can console themselves while remaining in the midst of their disobedience. God never gave his promises so disobedient Christians can console themselves with his promises in the midst of their disobedience. I remember a friend of mine he used to be in this church for a while. He was not a member, but he was involved in various ways. His marriage got into difficulties, and uh, he tried his best. He didn't get the cooperation that he needed, and under under those pressures, understandably, but not uh, not to excuse his work, he got involved with somebody else. I, I pleaded with him not to to reconsider. Uh, he continued on. We would periodically have, cause he stopped worshiping here. We periodically have lunches together, no matter what we talked about, I always end my conversation with pleading with him to not continue in this direction. What well, he did, he went ahead got married. He wanted me to attend his wedding. I said, I can't do it. You know I can't come. When well, he got married, then he said, well, Can you and Sham come for dinner to our home? I said, No, you know that I cannot come. You know? Anyway, this continued on and on, but I never lost my contact with him until one lunchtime. He just looked completely haggard and he said, He said, this last month has been the most terrifying month in my whole life. I said, what happened? He said, I thought I was going to hell. He had started attending another church. And during a communion service, God convicted him finally. And he was terrified. Now he realized what he had done before a holy God. And he said, I don't know whether I belong to him anymore or not. He understood. He had looked upon the graves. He looked in the cemetery of those who rebelled. And he was horrified and he came back. And now he was ready. And everything I said to him to do for repentance, he did. Including coming back to the elders of this church. Including writing letters to his former wife. And to her fam- siblings. And to her parents. And to receive forgiveness from each one of them. But it took this look before that happened. That's why, my friends, at the bottom line, there is nothing in our lives that comes even close in its significance to the question of who we are worshipping and how we are worshipping. Him. There isn't another more important question. It is stripped of everything else. It is the difference between the purifying power of the fire of a holy God and the consuming fire of self-worship. You remember these words from Isaiah chapter fifty. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. Trust in the name of the Lord. That's trembling before the word of God. That's worship. When you trust God and you don't understand why he's doing it. And you don't even understand his words at that time. Or they don't make full sense to you. You still obey. That's worship. That's trembling before his word. Or the alternative. Behold all who kindle a fire. Who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire. This is our own techniques. Our own methods. Our own devisings. Our own answers to these questions. Our own solutions. Leaning on the arm of the flesh. Is what the Bible calls it. Walk by the light of that fire. And the torches you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. And by the way. Jesus never shied back from this text. Do you know that he quoted this last verse from Isaiah 66? I mean, he only quoted nine times from Isaiah, although it was far more than anything else other than Deuteronomy. So every quote, I mean, you have 66 chapters of Isaiah to quote from. Every one of those eight quotations of Jesus must be crucial. And he, so he chooses to quote this last one in a well-known passage in the Sermon on the Mount. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin. Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame. Than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes causes you to sin. Take it out. Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God. With one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die. And their fire is not quenched. That is straight out of Isaiah 66. The very last verses. So Jesus didn't shy away from this at all. John Stott used to call this cultural amputation. Because we're not to literally cut off our hands and our eyes he talks about anything in our life that we might think oh that's so important to be with it, that's so important to be cool that's so important to stay up to date with what's happening and we can justify almost anything with that perspective I'll be kind of considered, I'll be in some way shortchanged if I didn't know about the latest movies and the latest songs and the latest books, yeah he says go to heaven shortchanged rather than go to hell right up to date that's the point he's making But he quotes Isaiah for serves the same purpose. Now, before I leave this to wrap up the message, this this second dimension of the horrifying end of self-worship. There is one other thing that is conjured up by this picture. Remember, these are these are metaphors, but these metaphors are pictures are intended to drive home truth to us in a way just uh, just like that propositions might not land. These two verses that are put together. A worshipping community and then going out and looking on the dead bodies. That's how he describes the worshipping community. He says here, Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. This can lead to the question, knowing that there is, there is the anguish, the eternal anguish of a community that has rejected Christ to the very end. How can we be joyful, especially when we may have close family members there? Good question. This text says something very important. By juxtaposing those two things together, it says to me that in the final analysis, the anguished pain of heart and the wailing of a broken spirit that characterizes hell will not have any power to rob one iota of the joy in heaven. Now this side, this side of eternity Our glimpse of the glory of God in our worship propels us outward to declare that glory, to bring as many people in. That's the thrust, the motivation for evangelism and mission. But the other side, in the new heavens and the new earth, when God's purposes are finished, I don't know how this will work, but it does tell me this. That in that community, hell will have no power to rob us of our joy. If it were otherwise, if it were otherwise, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, Then one disobedient soul can hold to ransom the joys of a million obedient people. And that will never be. That just cannot be. So you can write this down as well. Hell will have no veto power over the joy of heaven. We have sinned against infinite majesty and we have been offered infinite mercy. If that infinite mercy is rejected, what else is left? It's a sober conclusion. Of a book that is dominated by the Holy One of Israel. Well, I want to just wrap it up with one uh, important challenge to a particular subgroup of people here this morning. I don't know who you are, but you do. We go back again to the last two verses. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all flesh shall come to worship me before me declares the Lord and then they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worms shall not die their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh this is where history is going all of history is going to an end where there will be two eternally enduring communities one worshipping the Holy One of Israel the suffering servant the anointed conqueror who's now on the throne ascribing to him as revelation says glory and honor and dominion and majesty and power and wisdom and glory forever and ever and the other who will be caught in the fires of self-worship in a church this size i cannot assume that everybody's going to the first eternity i'll tell you why there's one incredible metaphor in this last passage of Isaiah. Isaiah has been full of images as you know. This is the one that makes this message come to a sober conclusion for some of you. Thus says the Lord, as a new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. The the picture is of a harvest time where someone is lopping off a bunch of grapes and they look at them and and the guy who's spreading them is saying, oh, these are sour grapes and he's about to throw them out. But they say, oh, no, 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 look at the sweet ones. There's some juice, beautiful sweet juice coming out of them. There's both sweet and sour in here. Don't throw it away. We'll separate them later. What does that say to us? It says that the same bunch can have sweet grapes and sour grapes and they will be separated, not now but later. That's why in a church this size, there might be some sour grapes. Which if you don't do something about now, will be headed on the day of separation for judgment. And so, I want to plead with you. Oswald puts it this way. Isaiah wants to correct with this metaphor, a hidden assumption common even today. Many people assume that outward identification with the church is enough to get by. God seems to accept it. Why shouldn't he? We don't mind God talk. We can even handle Jesus talk. Isaiah confronts that misunderstanding by saying, The truth is, God is patiently putting up with spiritually artificial people who are mixed in amongst his responsive people. But a harvest is coming when the true and the false will be separated. Listen, it is quite possible for some of you sitting here to have a form of godliness while denying the power. You don't want anything to do with the power. You want the form. It's possible you, you are threatened by any kind of demonstration of passion. The kind of stuff that Alan talked about at the beginning, where, where every day we need to be having our hearts make a home for God to come and touch the core of our being. Well, that's not, that's not what I bargained for. Any thought of a revived church blessing the nation of the world sounds like fanaticism that scares me. I want just enough God to get me to heaven and make my life meaningful here. I hope there isn't one sour grape here this morning, but i can't assume that, and because the eternal consequences are so important, I need to plead with you and so, can I turn from this picture to a magnificent picture that opens this section? I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. What a picture of a of the hound of heaven. <laughs> He's coming to people who are not even seeking Him. He says, I'm making myself available. I'm preparing myself so you can find me and seek me. And then even more amazing. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Listen, can you imagine anything more ridiculous than this? The sovereign Lord of the universe, this Holy One of Israel, whose outer skirts can make a temple shake, is pleading with a bunch of self absorbed infinitesimal little creatures who are snubbing him please notice me I'm here can you imagine any more condescension than that if the last verse of Isaiah is terrifying this is unbelievably condescending and then he says I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people (coughs) one scholar mentioned that in the Hebrew the language for spreading out your hands is a language of prayer so who should be spreading out the hands to whom (laughs) Rebellious people should be spreading out their hands to God. Here is God spreading out his hands. To rebellious people saying please come. You know why? Because one day this God was going to stoop really low. He was going to humble himself. First of all to become a human being. Secondly to take upon himself as a servant. And thirdly to submit himself. To humiliation And to stretch out those hands on a cross. To be crucified. That's why I said. We have sinned against infinite majesty but there is infinite mercy that is pleading with you to return to him. That you might become part of the sweet grapes headed for an eternity that is characterized by incredible joy. I want to close as we uh, get ready for uh, partaking in that remembering of the stooping of an infinite God. These symbols of infinite mercy. I came across this poem that was attributed to a preacher by the name of Roy Clement. This is what it said. It was on a Friday morning when they took me from the cell. And I saw they had a carpenter to crucify as well. You can blame it on Pilate. You can blame it on the Jews. You can blame it on the devil. It is God that I choose. It is God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter hanging on a tree. Now Barabbas was a killer and they let Barabbas go. But you were being crucified for nothing here below. And God is up in heaven and he doesn't do a thing. With a million angels watching and they never move a wing. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter hanging on a tree. Well they did crucify God. Let's worship him. Let's worship him the way he deserves to be and wants to be worshipped. One of these two eternities can break in upon us anytime. So I would just urge you, plead with you, this is the day of salvation. Be reconciled to God. I want to bless you with an appetite for his glory. And may there be a continual echoing of that prayer in your heart. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and make your name known amongst us. I want to bless you with a hunger to see that glory and to be touched and transformed by that glory and to be sent and commissioned by that glory. Go in Jesus' name.